If you're a fan of Borrowed, you might want to check out a podcast called The Big Shut-In from our friends at Race Car Radio. It features long-form conversations with all kinds of people, real people, here in New York and all around the country, to hear how they're coping during the coronavirus crisis. It's unscripted and intimate, and it really gives you a view into people's lives as they navigate this truly difficult time. So you can find The Big Shut-In at racecarradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Michelle Williams. Michelle is a patron at Brooklyn Public Library. Her son was incarcerated at Rikers, and while he was there, she used a program at the library that lets patrons video chat with their loved ones who are incarcerated in New York City. The program is called Telestory. Thank goodness I no longer need to utilize the Telestory visit part because my son is home. That's my granddaughter making all that noise. We talked to Michelle back in January before the pandemic shut down our branches. She was at Bedford Library for a monthly support meeting for families who use the Telestory service. She talked to us about how important it was to see her son on video when he was incarcerated. She could walk to the local library branch and talk to her son in a comfortable environment. She could bring her granddaughter, her son's daughter, along too so that she could see her dad. And you had to cram and everything, so everybody is yelling and shouting and laughing, and just it just was so hilarious. It was awesome. So he didn't get a chance to miss me, and I didn't get a chance to miss him, thanks to Tell a Story. But because of the pandemic, the libraries had to pause our Tell a Story service, along with so many other in-person programs. Here's Michael Carey, the coordinator of Justice Initiatives at Brooklyn Public Library. Library branches closed on the 16th of March, which at DOC, around the same time, they stopped allowing in-person visits on Rikers Island. Uh, So there was no video visits, there were no in-person visits. The only ways that you could communicate with someone in the city correction system was was by telephone or you know by by physical mail when the pandemic brought our normal lives to a halt back in march it threw everything into uncertainty including the daily lives of people who are incarcerated and their loved ones there was obviously a lot of really understandable anxiety about uh, conditions on rikers island during the pandemic definitely a sense of isolation that a lot of families were feeling uh, that you know they could maybe get a phone call in with a family member if they were lucky. Um, but, you know, those services are really stretched thin inside the facilities. The correctional system in New York City is already a frustrating and opaque system to navigate. And during the pandemic, communication challenges and health and safety concerns grew. We spoke to Michael T. Mingo Sr. in May during our COVID-19 oral history project. Michael Mingo is a Brooklynite who was at one time incarcerated and still has friends who are living in jails and prisons in New York City. And a note that the sound quality of this clip is pretty poor. Michael was talking to us on the street on a cell phone. When they when they stopped everything out here, that essentially trickled over to the prison system. The visits have stopped here. There's no visitation. That's what's going on right now. 24-hour lockdown. You know, um, no visitation, no yard movement, everybody's in their cell. Their concern is their people on the outside, but our concern is the people on the inside. Yeah. Um, 
they want to they want to make sure we're high, but we're trying to make sure they're high because in there is two times worse than it is out here. They're in there with really no medical protection, and most of the people that reach out to me, they're all talking about when the when the, when the lockdown is going to be lifted in New York. Anxiety among family members and friends of people who are incarcerated, like Michael Mingo, was rightfully high as news started to emerge about COVID-19 infections at Rikers and other city jails. The rate of transmission in jails and prisons is much higher because people are packed close together, sharing bathrooms, eating areas, and common spaces, and as Michael indicated, with less PPE. BPL has for a long time been a resource that helps people navigate this system, providing information and support to family members of people who are incarcerated. So the library jumped into action even as we were closing our physical doors. You know, we did, you know, hundreds of phone calls in those first few weeks out to Telestory families, assessing the needs that they have, trying to connect them to resources, also answering a lot of questions that they had about what was going on inside DOC. The most common thing was about like, you know, family members having difficulties um, getting in contact with their loved one who is, you know, incarcerated. That's Ophia Ali, who works with Michael in the library's outreach department. She interacts directly with family members of people who are incarcerated. Back in March, she called the dozens of families who used to come into the library to use our Telestory service. Ophia had to notify families that they could no longer come into the library to see their loved ones on video, and that they couldn't go to the jails or the prisons either. And then, as time went on, she started helping them navigate a new online system for connecting with families and loved ones at detention centers, helping with new forms and new web platforms. She checked in on these families as their school lives and work lives changed, as money became tight and the virus spread. Ophia and the team at BPL's Outreach Services Department learned that many of the families were having a hard time navigating remote schooling. They didn't have basic school supplies or ways to entertain their kids when parents had to work. So the library mailed families school supplies and activity books. It was a small, bright spot in a time when everything felt uncertain. According to the Legal Aid Society, by the end of July, the infection rate among Department of Corrections staff and people in custody was 11%, which was much higher than New York City's general infection rate of 2.7% at the time. There were times where I felt very helpless, especially when I didn't know the answer or I felt like there was nothing in place to um, support families. It's just like a reminder that, you know, people just don't, I guess, like, you know, people just, or like, you know, society in general just don't care, you know, they're going on with their, with their lives. And, you know, this is a population that needs, needs a lot of support, but they just don't receive it. So, you know, in a way it was motivation to keep moving forward and keep showing up. Today, we're talking about how the library shows up for people who are incarcerated and their loved ones. I'm Adjo Aduse. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library.
Libraries have long been critical resources for people who are incarcerated. There has been changing attitudes towards prison libraries throughout history. Originally, the books and materials inside prisons were controlled by the institutions themselves, and it was thought that only moralizing or religious texts should be given to people in prison. Now, access to information is not as restricted in prison libraries. While state and federal prison libraries are under the jurisdiction of the Federal Bureau of Prisons and individual state departments of corrections, at county and city jails, they often partner with local public libraries to provide reading materials and library services to people who are incarcerated. That's the case with the jails and prisons in New York City. There are librarians at each of the three city library systems, Queens, Brooklyn, and New York Public Libraries, who work specifically with patrons in jails and prisons. BPL's chief librarian, Nick Higgins, used to be one of those public librarians who went to Rikers Island, and we talked to him a little bit about what it was like. On the ground level, what it looked like was me and a part-time staff member and a lot of library school interns uh, loading up a bunch of duffel bags uh, full of paperback books, um, requests from people that we had seen the previous week, um, jumping on the Q100 bus in Long Island City and um, taking a trip with a bunch of family members and other service providers out to Rikers Island, loading up the books onto book carts, rolling them around to different housing areas inside the jail, uh, talking with people about what they like to read, trying to create a much more um, kind of human interaction in, in an environment that didn't really um, excel or um, succeed at that. It was while he was working as a jail and prisons librarian that Nick saw an opportunity to fill another need, communication with loved ones on the outside. Things we might take for granted, like making a phone call or sending a text or an email, those are often really hard inside of prisons. It usually costs money to make a phone call or send an email, and people who are incarcerated aren't allowed cell phones. But the ability to come to court using technology was relatively simple. People who are incarcerated can appear on video camera at hearings, and that gave Nick an idea. We discovered that there was already video um, equipment, really old, clunky video equipment that the jails were using already for court visits. And we got some partners from Cisco uh, to come in and help convert that equipment uh, to, to play nice with the equipment that we had here at the library uh, on a secure kind of video feed to the jail. From that very clunky video equipment, the idea for Telestory was born. If family members could just get to their local library, they could sit in a private room and video chat with their loved one in jail. We called the program Telestory because originally what we wanted to do was create a moment where incarcerated parents could sit and read a book or tell a story with their children. At first, Telestory was only in a few branches, but soon the program gained momentum and got more funding. Now, Telestory operates at 12 of VPL's neighborhood libraries, and there are similar video visiting programs at NYPL and Queens Public Library, though since the pandemic, visits have been paused. We are, of course, hoping to bring the program back as soon as health guidelines allow. In January, our producer Virginia visited an in-person gathering of Telestory families. It's a monthly meeting where people who have loved ones in jail can come to share food and support each other. In the programming room at Bedford Library, a dozen people gathered around a buffet. There was chicken and fish, fruit salad and brownies. Remember, this is 2020, January. Kids are running around on the rug and playing with toys that the 
librarians pulled out just for them. Michelle Williams, who we heard from in the beginning of this episode and whose son had been incarcerated at Rikers Island, was there with her family. She talked to us about how hard it was to visit her son while he was there. I used to go visit my son at least three times a week. It was a horrible trip. It was just horrible. For me, I had to take two trains and a bus. So it, it was just horrible. It was horrible. So that cut out a lot of that. And then when you get there, you have to be um, go through the metal detectors, take off your shoes and all of that. There's all sorts of things that you can't take into a correctional facility for obvious reasons. So your phone, you know, a lot of personal effects, etc. That's Michael Carey again, the coordinator of justice initiatives at BPL. If you're visiting with kids, uh, they restrict what you can take into the facility. Some mothers who actually bring their kids to do a televisit, they always tell me the most common story is they can only bring one diaper or one bottle into, into the facility. That's Ophia Ali again. The entire visiting process is about six hours. So you would think like if they're, if they're getting hungry like every hour, they would need at least like you know, six bottles or, you know, more than one diaper. Oh, my name is Shahida Adumadine. Shahida came to the family supports event with her son, an adorable, sleepy-eyed toddler. She used to visit her partner on Rikers, and she described the aggressive search she experienced every time she went there. Like, when I was playing with the baby, they would, like, aggressive search me, scan my hand, didn't have find no substance every time. But since I had the baby, I, I couldn't go back up there anymore no after I had the baby because I'm like, I'm not going up there with me and the baby after all that they did to me when I was pregnant with him. Shahida decided to stop visiting Rikers after her baby was born. And this is maybe the moment to say that Rikers is a place where we hold people awaiting trial, people serving sentences less than a year, and people who have violated their parole. Some detainees can spend anywhere from two months to seven months to two years awaiting their trial. Meanwhile, they are held in these pretty deplorable conditions. Lawmakers and journalists have called Rikers a deteriorating, unsafe, and even abusive place. So for all these reasons, it's not a place that most people would feel comfortable bringing a small child. After her son was born, Shahida's partner was moved to the Manhattan House of Corrections. Shahida tried to visit him there, bringing along their new baby. At Manhattan House of Corrections, she said her son's diaper had to be checked before she could be allowed in for a visit. That search took a long time. She waited for two hours, and after all of that, Shahida said she only had a few minutes to visit with her partner, and by that time, her son was hot, tired, and cranky. When we got back there, that boy said, done. When he screamed, you ain't gonna want to have a visit. Shahida's story reflects that this whole process, the thoroughness, the waiting, It is incredibly traumatic and punitive to family members as well as to those who are incarcerated. When Shahida heard about Telestory, she hoped it would be the answer to her situation. And she's since used the service many times and she enjoys coming to the library for the visits. Like everybody know me, like me and the baby and they love the baby and they never forget the baby. So that's a good thing. He gets us in, we sit there like, oh yeah, okay. And we just relax for the hour. Even just that little change, having a visit with a loved one where you can relax and be with your child together, it means a lot. 
During the visit, incarcerated parents will often read stories to their children on video. We see families doing all sorts of things. Um, There's obviously reading that goes on. Kids will do drawings. I usually take the pictures and send them out to the facility so they can actually have the physical copy with them. We we had one uh, dad. This was the only time the incarcerated father was seeing his daughter, and uh, he put together a set of cards uh, for her and it was all of all of the uh, dates that he'd missed while he'd been locked up. So it was her birthday, it was Valentine's card, Christmas card. So he made this whole set of cards and he sent them to the library so that we could give them to the to the daughter when she came in for a visit. Many patrons who use the library's telestory service end up forming close connections with the library staff and with the other families who use the service. Some Telestory patrons continue attending the monthly support meetings, even after they no longer use the service. That was the case with Michelle, who continued attending Telestory family support meetings even after her son was released from Rikers. So we, as moms, aunties, grandmas and stuff, we get to know each other, you know, and we get to share stories with each other. So that helps a lot, you know, that, that helps like really a lot to be able to say, well, my son is home and it's like, oh, yay. Well, my husband just had to go back. So it's like, oh, my God, how are you? Like, do you need anything? Another patron at Bedford Library that day also no longer used Tell a Story, but for a very different reason. My name is Luz Lara. I'm from Ridgewood, Queens, and uh, I'm here because my grandson is in prison. He's doing, they gave him eight years of televisits. It was, it's, it's a godsend. It's a blessing for me, you know, because like when he was at Rockers Island, I used to have the, the, the visits, but where he is now at, uh, at Auburn, upstate, they don't have it. Unfortunately, library video conferencing programs like Telestory don't exist in state prisons. The options there are phone calls or in-person visits, which can take a lot of time and money. Luz said that it cost her $55 for a round-trip bus ticket to visit her grandson upstate. She has to meet the bus at Broadway Junction at midnight. Because of her childhood polio, Luz has trouble walking and has to use the MTA's Accessoride system, which has to be booked in advance, and that costs another $5.50, money that Luz can't spend all the time. And once she gets to the bus... It's a four-hour drive each way. Wow, uh, what a long day. Starting at midnight and eight hours of driving. Lou says she can receive calls from her grandson, but it's not the same as seeing him. He called me last week. He's, he's doing okay. It's just that he's, he's struggling, you know, because he's in maximum security. And so he gets, has one, one hour out of his cell, 24-7 he's in the cell. This would be wonderful if we could expand it to upstate, you know, so this way we won't, you know, we can, we can see him, you know. The library is currently discussing expansion with the New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervisions. If that goes well, people like Luz will be able to see their loved ones in state prisons more easily and for free. And just a note that we've all been hearing a lot in the past few months about divesting from police and prisons and instead investing in communities. We as a library will continue to push for investment in communities. But while courts and jails operate as they do, we will also do what we can to reduce harm within the current carceral system. 
To that end, the Justice Initiatives team at Brooklyn Public Library has not stopped showing up for people who are incarcerated. We talked with BPL's Correctional Services Librarian, Diego Sandoval Hernandez. He hasn't been able to see his patrons in months, but he's kept in touch with the facilities that he used to visit, and he's figured out a way to keep sending them books. Um, And we worked with them to create a survey to sort of try and gauge what the interest was and, and create many collections based on those needs. Based on the survey he created, Diego figures out what patrons in jails and prisons want to read, and he mails books to different facilities in New York City. When we spoke to him, he was at BPL's Central Library, surrounded by books and boxes, packing up the next shipment of reading material. And Diego is at work on another program for his patrons. During the pandemic, I think the Department of Corrections uh, was pressured into sort of offering Uh, tablets that were already in use at some facilities to most people who are incarcerated in the city. One of these facilities invited us to basically create content uh, for these tablets. The the very uh, exciting thing about these tablets is that it would allow us to do services that we, because of the pandemic, have been unable to do. we, we are currently in talks on figuring out a process where we can make Ask a Librarian model available through these tablets where um, our patrons would submit a question with these tablets and then we'd be able to mail out different re- uh, uh, responses to different uh, research inquiries that we, we used to do uh, when we did book cart services at the facilities. Even after the pandemic, the tablets will be a great resource. For many folks in prisons, having a trusted resource like a librarian available on their devices will mean access to -to up-to-date, factual information and an important connection to the outside world. Diego is calling the program a virtual library for all, and it's been funded by BPL's incubator program. We'll check back in with Justice Initiatives as this program and other programs develop. We also wanted to mention another organization that does great work around information access in prisons. The Prison Library Support Network is a collective founded in 2016 by a group of librarians and activists. We'll put a link to their website on our show page so that you can read more about their current efforts and get involved. Though it's been an incredibly challenging year for our incarcerated patrons and their families, we've been working hard to keep them connected and we'll keep doing it. It wouldn't be a borrowed episode without a bookmatch segment. Our producer talked with YA librarian Erica Spellman about the book list she created for adult and teen patrons experiencing the incarceration of a loved one. One in 14 children and teens experience incarceration of a parent, and they feel invisible because teachers don't really talk about this. Parents don't often talk about this. It's sort of swept under the rug. And it's important for these kids and teens to feel seen. The way I envisioned the book list is that it would have teens with incarcerated parents, books just for fun, some about justice, and some about alternative family situations like foster home and things like that. So my first book recommendation is a brand new book called Punching the Air. It's by young adult novelist E.B. Zaboy in collaboration with Yusuf Salam, who is one of the exonerated five from the infamous Central Park Five case in 1989. 
It is a novel in verse, sort of based on the author's experience. So the author went to jail for several years before he was exonerated for the crime that he did not commit. So it's based on his experience at being incarcerated. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the book that'll give you an idea of how this boy feels when he's convicted and led out of the courtroom. The door of no return. It's where slaves had to go through to get on a ship sailing to America. It's where African people lost everything and stepped out into a future they didn't know. So when the officers hold that door open leading out of the courtroom, I think of that trip that never happened and the door of no return. My life, my whole damn life before that courtroom, before that trial, before that night was like Africa. And this door leads to, leads to a slave ship and maybe jail. Maybe jail is, is America. My second book is a book called The First Part Last by Angela Johnson. It's about a young boy, 16 years old, who is raising his baby on his own. It's very poetic, and um, I loved it as an adult. It's a slim book, so it might also attract reluctant readers because you pull it off the shelf and, you know, you say to yourself, I could read this in an hour. And it's called The First Part Last because it alternates between now and then. And he tells the story of now and how hard it is raising his little girl. He's in his parents' home, but his mother has made it clear she is not the babysitter. He's got to do it on his own if he wants to do this. And then it splices in chapters from then, where he's with his girlfriend, he's with his friends, he's doing normal high school teenage things. And you don't find out until the end why why is he doing this on his own? Where is his girlfriend? And what made him decide to keep this baby and raise her on his own when it's so hard, but he never seems to regret it at all? He loves her so much. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krissa Corbett-Kavoris and Adjua Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Bard is produced by Virginia Marshall and written by Virginia Marshall and Adwa Aduse with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, Robin Lester-Kenton, and our beta listeners on this episode, Carolisa Kimmel, Lucretia Neal, Melissa Marone, and Kat Savage. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed will be back in two weeks. Until next time, let's keep showing up.